0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Turn with me to the letter to the Galatians, chapter 5. We'll be preaching today verses 13, 14, and 15, uh, which as a side note means that the cards showing the upcoming sermons are now incorrect, uh, because I was supposed to go through 18, didn't. Um, But this is going to be a full and entire sermon, and so I guess it's a good thing that I did not try to take on uh, those extra three verses. Galatians chapter 5, 13, 14, and 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So in most of Paul's letters, he follows a pattern of opening with a theological teaching and then moving on to an instructional teaching. And he also does so here in Galatians, uh, but I do hope as well that you've seen so far as we work through Galatians that neither category is exclusive. Theology, when studied properly, always results in action, whether that be praise or repentance or a change in your beliefs. And likewise, practical instruction is always rooted in theology, and it also teaches us about God's character and his will, which is theology. So these three verses are the hinge between the two sections, the theological section and the instructional section. But again, as both categories do, this section contains a great deal of both. And it serves to summarize both the main theological thrust of the letter and to introduce the main instructional points. Let me read it again. Galatians 5, 13, 14, and 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So today we're going to take each verse in turn as one of my three points. Uh, Each verse I think makes a main point and then all three also build on one another towards an ultimate common goal. So first, we're going to observe the dangers of counting ourselves free from the law without defining what we are free to do. Second, we're going to consider what Paul, quoting Jesus, believes is expected of us to be righteous which will again show us why the law cannot save us. And finally, we will observe the tendency to give grace to ourselves to sin too freely while simultaneously holding others to legalistic standards. All of these come together to emphasize Paul's main theological point of Galatians, that we are not saved by the law and that those who insist that we are are dividing us and connect it to his practical instruction that is upcoming, namely that true salvation free from bondage to the law results in unity with one another in the spirit so let's look at the first verse the main idea here being being free from something is no good unless you are also free to something better for you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another so let me introduce A couple of phrases, the idea of positive freedom versus negative freedom. It's it's an old idea, not unique to me, traceable back to antiquity, but basically there are two senses in which one can be free. First, one can be free from something bad. You can be free from jail, or free from debt, or free from disease. This bad thing has no claim over you, you're free. Negative freedom is usually constructed as being free from something but there's also positive freedom, which is sometimes, but not always the other side of the same coin. You are free to do something. For example, if you are free from jail, you are automatically free to go, but they don't always automatically follow. Another example, you could be free from debt. You could be free to save your money or to give your money away or to spend it on a bunch of stuff that you like and go back into debt, but not automatically. Merely being free from something does not automatically confer freedom to do something else. Freedom from debt merely opens the door for your freedom to do something else. And so we often then stop short of true freedom. We see we are free from the law, but we do not acknowledge that we are free to go on and do more. We idolize freedom, but the idolatrous type of freedom is the type that we idolize. That type of freedom that frees us from all of our constraints, but does not free us to anything except perhaps our own gratification. We want to be free from all demands that anyone would put on us, but we don't replace that freedom to do what's right. Or maybe we replace it with freedom to do what feels right, and it's hard argue against this impulse because it's deep in our DNA, not only as a human experience but as the American way. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We want to be free. Free from tyranny. Free from oppression. Free to do what? For what it's worth, this is not actually the vision for America that our founders believed in. They recognized that being free from obligation but not free to anything, was in fact a terrible and dangerous state. John Adams says our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. In other words, letting people do what they want is only good for them if they want to do good things. And so it was well known that freeing a person to nothing was a recipe for disaster. And unfortunately, The greatest evil ever committed by a country is hypocritical proof of that. Defenders of American slavery said that African slaves were better off as slaves because as slaves, they could not be freed from slavery since they were believed to be incapable of governing themselves and living full lives. Now that's obviously a vile and racist belief, but what we replaced it with was little better. Being freed from slavery, but not being freed to full rights and citizenship. And look at the harm that that also did. Merely being free from restraint is not sufficient to flourish. You must be free to a full life of virtue. Freedom to be truly realized must be both freedom from restraint and freedom to action. Negative freedom is not an ideal in and of itself. So this whole letter to the Galatians teaches us that we are free from the law. And it presents this as a good thing. The law cannot save us. The law cannot make us righteous. The law can condemn us. And so being free from the law is joyous. And yet what happens when we are free from the law with nothing to replace it? An opportunity for the flesh arises. Look at our world. We desire to be free from all obligations. We wish to choose our own destiny, only taking on what we choose for ourselves. We have made freedom from constraint the ultimate virtue. But where does this get us? Galatians 6 says the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. What are these opportunities for the flesh that come from unfettered freedom? Now it's easy to point at the low-hanging fruit and miss the rest. So probably when you hear me talking about how the spirit of the age is unbridled freedom with no higher ideal than freedom itself and opportunity for the flesh, your mind probably goes to things like gender confusion. I wish to be free of my gender, or free from God's expectations for my gender, or casual sex or divorce. I wish to be free from any obligations attached to my need for companionship or sexual gratification, or abortion. I wish to be free from my child. And absolutely, yes, a hundred times yes to all of these. These are all perfect examples of being free from obligation and not being free to virtue. And see what Paul says in the next few verses. The works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So do not use your freedom from the law as an opportunity for sexual immorality do not use your freedom from the law as an opportunity for idolatry. Yes, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for sorcery. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for drunkenness. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for envy. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for division. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for fits of anger. You see, there are two ways for Christians to abuse our freedom if we do not rightly order it. The first and obvious one probably goes something like this. But you know, the Bible says I'm free from the law, so I will choose to sin this time. It'll be okay in the end. That's the kind of freedom that leads to things like drunkenness or sexual immorality or stealing. It's very common. We all do it. I'm tempted in this way every day, and I'm sure you are as well. I make light of my temptation because... Maybe in my heart, at least subconsciously, I know that my salvation isn't on the line. But this type of abuse of freedom is obvious. There's a second and less obvious, but equally common and equally destructive way to abuse freedom, and it goes something like this. I'm free from the law, so I don't have to do this. I can't be, I can't be forced to do something I don't want to do. I can't be obligated to do something, I'm free. I don't have to be generous with my time or my money. I don't have to turn the other cheek. I don't have to be careful with my speech and consider others more important than myself. I don't have to give up my own way. I'm allowed to do this, even though I know it disturbs another brother's conscience. I'm allowed to let my envy fester. I'm free. And Paul is clearly warning about both. As you see, he lists both varieties of sin in the next section in next week's sermon he'll address more fully that first type of false freedom the gratification of the flesh but today the warning is more sharply focused on the second kind I don't have to give you my time I'm free I don't have to give up my anger I'm free I don't have to set aside my dispute with you I'm free those thoughts those heart conditions are just as much of an opportunity for the flesh as orgies and sorcery so why do we think that way? The short answer, obviously, is selfishness. We love ourselves more than others. But we can unpack that a little more. I think that we withhold love and service from one another because our hearts still secretly fear that God's love and therefore our salvation are limited, right? Like, like money is is scarce. There's a certain amount of it. If you spend it, you don't have it anymore. That's kind of, that's like the point of money. That's how it's supposed to work. And likewise we think, if I give up my opinion or my anger or my envy or my whatever, I won't have anything left for me. And so I have the freedoms in. Maybe you might even say, I have the right to defend myself and defend my own interests. But God says, no, that's that's the whole point. That's what you are free from, is the need to defend your own interests. You are free from having to do that. You are free from having to impress God, you are free from having to impress anyone else, you are free from having to do enough works to earn God's favor. This is the law from which you are freed, is the need to make a name for yourself. We now have, through the gospel, freely, all of the love and satisfaction that we could ever need. And no matter how much you give away, you will never have any less, just like God, giving us an infinite amount of love and grace and service has no less to give so we have the freedom to be completely free with our love for one another serving one another with no need to hold back any of those secret fleshly concerns where we're watching out for ourselves James says the very same thing in his letter in chapter 4 what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So whatever it is that you're withholding from others, whatever it is that you're refusing to love and serve others with, ask God for it. If you are angry and you feel entitled to hold on to your anger, give it over to God and ask Him to make it right in His time. If you are jealous because you fear someone overtaking your accomplishments, ask God to satisfy you. If you envy someone else's life, pray to God to make you boast in him instead of yourself. He will give it to you. You are free. And not only are you free, but Galatians 4 says you are a son of God, an inheritor, an heir to his estate. You will be given what God has for you. Think of Jesus' words. If you, earthly fathers, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give? And consider the prodigal son's father who held nothing back in spite of his son's complete rejection. God is not scarce. He is not holding back love and service from you. Ask him to meet your needs and then do not yourself be scarce with your love and service. So stop using your freedom to protect your own interests. You have been set free from the need to gain and earn, and you have been set free to love and serve. The only real application for this first point is to check your heart. Ask yourself, what am I holding back from my brothers and sisters? What love am I not giving? What service am I denying? What do I need to be free with? Do not squander the freedom that God has given you. And at this this point, I would also say if you are not a Christian, recognize that you are in a most dangerous place in regards to freedom. You probably are trying to free yourself from all kinds of restraints, as we all naturally do, to free yourself from physical need, maybe from unpleasant people, from existential fear, from unhappiness. Maybe you're just trying to free yourself from having to worry about it too much, what's right and wrong and what happens when you die. But be wary as you free yourselves from these constraints, what you are being freed to. For God promises that you will ultimately find unfettered freedom to gratify yourself unsatisfying. Christians are free to love and serve God, and eventually we are free to live with God in heaven forever. So listen to God and let him free you from your sins and free you to love him. Let's move on to the next verse. The big idea here being, we like having laws because it allows our heart to focus on them while ignoring the big picture of righteousness. Verse 14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you've been here, coming to Foundation consistently, you will hopefully remember that we've spent something like the last 12 weeks working through the first two thirds of Galatians, The entire point of which is, the law can't save you, the law brings only death, and the law has been replaced by Jesus. So is now Paul saying here, serve one another in love because of the law? Not quite. There are two necessary keys to understanding the statement that he makes here. First is the word fulfilled, and second is the fact that Paul is quoting Jesus, both when he teaches about the great commandment and his earlier Sermon on the Mount, and that Jesus in those discourses, is himself quoting the law. Quite a bit in both cases. So we'll get there. But first, let's look and see that Paul does not actually say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is the definition of obeying the law. You are not the point of this sentence. Paul is saying that the law is fulfilled. So what is the distinction then between fulfilled and obeyed? What's the difference between fulfilling the law and obeying the law? So when a contract is fulfilled, that means that both parties have completed their agreed upon tasks to the satisfaction of the other. And is the law not the same? It is not. We do not interact with God through a contract. And in fact, the fact that we don't interact with God through a contract is the fundamental distinction between Christianity and the other theistic religions. We are not exchanging something with God, our works in return for favor, but if our works do not earn us favor, what is the law for? In other words, if the law is not there to teach us what we're supposed to do to fit our end of the contract, what is it? And the answer is found earlier in Galatians. We've been hearing about this for several weeks now. And so hopefully a reader of Galatians or a listener of sermons will see the progress of the argument. In Galatians 1.16, Paul says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Right, we've got that. The law cannot justify us. Well then why does it exist? Galatians 2.21 says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. So here Paul explicitly denies that God promises salvation in exchange for obedience to the law, but he also says the law isn't simply the opposite of the promise. The law serves a purpose. Galatians 2.24 says the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now what does a guardian do? A guardian keeps watch, custody if you will, in service to another. You don't guard something for no reason. You guard something because someone told you to. And that other is Christ. The law, the guardian, has custody until Christ came. Jesus is the real thing. Jesus is the boss. Jesus is righteousness. The law points us to righteousness. The law says, listen, this is what it looks like to be righteous, but the law doesn't make you righteous. The law says, no, no, look, Jesus is righteous. Jesus is righteousness. So the law isn't evil. It isn't the opposite of the promise, but it also certainly isn't sufficient to describe righteousness. And so we're about to see what Jesus thinks about righteousness, what Jesus thinks it means to be righteous. Because if the law points us to Jesus and Jesus is righteousness, let's define it. Paul is quoting Jesus. And Jesus is quoting Leviticus. Let's look at Matthew 22 when Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says this in response to Jews trying to trap him into elevating one command over the other so that they can discredit him by saying, Oh, you don't take the law seriously. But if Jesus knows that the law can't save us, why is he engaging with the law as if it matters? Let's quickly go to the Sermon on the Mount. That's where Paul gets that word fulfilled. In Matthew five, Jesus says, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law "'or the prophets. "'I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them.'" And he says, "'Unless your righteousness exceeds "'that of the scribes and Pharisees, "'you will never enter the kingdom of heaven.'" So this is very important. The only way to get to heaven, says Jesus, the only way to be right with God is to be righteous. I know, have we not just been hammering the point for months that obedience to the law doesn't save us? Yes, yes, that's right. Obedience to the law does not save us because obedience to the law doesn't make us righteous. Jesus' death and resurrection makes us righteous. The law shows us that we are not righteous. Jesus makes us righteous. We're full of sin, and no amount of works can overcome that. We actually need to be fundamentally changed from the ground up and be made righteous. Jesus was free from sin, and he did do everything that was required to be judged righteous. So we ought to die for our sins, since we cannot be with God in the condition that we're in, but Jesus died for our sins. We ought to be cast down into hell when we die, but Jesus rose from the grave and up to heaven and takes us with him, everyone who believes. And the reason we can have these things is not because we obey the law, not because we obey the law and are made righteous, but because Jesus fulfilled the law and makes us righteous. And so the, the, the reason I'm going over this is because I wanna make the point that righteousness does not go away because the law is fulfilled. God is still holy, he's still righteous. You still must be righteous to be with him But the failure of the law to save reveals to us that the actual standard of righteousness is so 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 much higher than anything the law could describe the law is merely pointing in the direction of righteousness perfect adherence to the law is not sufficient your law your your righteousness must exceed the most lawful men so jesus is saying in the sermon on the mount and paul is saying here in galatians you think you're righteous because the law says to love your neighbor and you think that you do? If you were really righteous, you would know that to love your neighbor means to love your enemy too. So the law is fulfilled in this word, love your neighbor. The freedom from the law means that we are not obligated to obey up to the point of the law, but we are free to be far beyond it in righteousness. It's directly tied to Paul's above command to not use your freedom for the flesh. You see, we love having very precise rules about what to do because that gives us permission to just do that and ignore the rest. We try to use the law as a way to give license to our flesh. So let's take like a nice clean mathematical example. The law says to tithe 10%. The Pharisees tithe 10% to the penny. They even tithe 10% of their spices. Jesus says, You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. And don't think here that Jesus is saying, Hey, you guys have probably never heard this before, but you should know tithing isn't like the main point of the law. No, no, no. Jesus is quoting Malachi. The Pharisees would have had that memorized. They knew all about that. That's not new. They were using the law to avoid its weightier requirements of righteousness. See, they loved having that 10% rule because they can pull out the spreadsheet and show you look it's the law it says it says i'm doing it and their hearts are not righteous so paul warns us not to do the same thing it is possible to give license to the flesh by saying well since i'm not saved by the law that means i can do whatever i want but it's also possible to give license to the flesh by saying hey i obeyed the law here so i'm good and so paul reminds us to obey the law is to love your neighbor That's an intentionally imprecise command. There's no way to measure whether or not you have sufficiently completed loving your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan says it's whoever comes across your path. What does it mean to love or to serve one another? And Jesus served us by dying. So until you're there, you can't really check any boxes. There is no end condition where you have arrived at loving your neighbor. Until we receive our new bodies in glory, we will not be fully righteous. And so for that, we praise God then that Jesus saves us and not our righteousness, because we see that even if we were to perfectly adhere to the law, it's not righteous. And so we're building upon the first point. Yes, we are free from the law. We are free from the need to withhold good things for ourselves. And so now let's ask from this verse, when the rubber hits the road, what does that look like? To love and serve your neighbor? And we see what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, what the law is saying. All along, the point has been, it's a matter of your heart. There's no checklist or point scoring system, and there's no law that explains how to love your neighbor. But there is Jesus, and there is his righteousness that is the perfect example of loving your neighbor. So don't try to keep score, and don't try to force a law upon your love. Rather, take Jesus at his word that he has fulfilled the law, revealing righteousness to us, and giving righteousness to us through his service, his death and resurrection, to us. So likewise, love your neighbor, not with a list of laws, since that will never be enough, but with a heart of righteousness. Practically, what might that mean? It could be anything, but consider, stop serving your spouse and your kids out of an expectation for return. Love them like Jesus loves you. Or maybe it means, stop being such a mercenary at work. Your coworkers and customers and employees are either fellow believers in need of encouragement or unbelievers in need of life. And work is not a magical place that is walled off from the rest of your Christian life. You are still a neighbor to those you work with. How about be careful in your acts of service in public? Yes, do not let yourself work for the sake of being seen, but also do not let your physical service count as enough when to truly love your neighbor means so much more. I could go on, but consider the things in your life that you do, the places in your life where you think that you're following the law, ask yourself, am I following the law so that I can stop there? Or am I striving to be righteous? Let's move to the final verse for today. The last point here is, don't use legalism with others as an excuse for looseness with yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so you may wonder then why this verse belongs here. Sure, you know, Paul is talking about loving and serving one another, so biting and devouring seems like it's the opposite of that. That's true. But I think there's more to it than just do this and also don't do this. I think if you take the first point, that you're supposed to use your freedom, not for yourselves, but for others, and then you add in the second point, don't try to use precise obedience for the law as an excuse for unrighteousness, and you bring those ideas together, Paul is here warning about a very specific, but incredibly common pattern of sinful thought in Christians. As you can see from the list of the works of the flesh further on, and it's contrasted with the very next paragraph which is the fruit of the spirit, Paul cares a great deal about unity in the church. It is one of his most written on topics. About biting and devouring and consuming is obviously an example of division and discord. And this conversation about freedom and the law leads toward a certain variety of divisive behavior that's very common in church culture. We apply a false standard of freedom to our own lives, making room for sin, being gentle with ourselves, while applying legalism to someone else in an area where we find it easy to obey as a way to console our conscience. In other words, we have this tendency to look at another Christian or another church and say, oh, well, they don't do this thing that I'm really good at doing. That's good. That kind of lets me cut some slack on this area where I know that I sin. We bolster ourselves at the expense of another. We're gracious with ourselves and judgmental with the other. And so let me get out in front of that and say I'm not arguing for like a don't judge me type of theology. You know, the tattoos are not theologically accurate. Um, but but we've, already, you know, we've already established earlier that like, we're not free to sin, and observing the sin of another accurately is not wrong. It's, it's okay to like judge as in the sense of like, yes, I observed that this truly did happen. That's not the issue. What I'm warning of goes more like this. You have a particular law that you follow. Maybe you find it comes naturally, or maybe it's something that you're really proud of because you had to work really hard to get here. Either way, objectively speaking, you're doing a good job in this area. Let's say that you never curse, congratulate, even when you're by yourself, how about that? That's really impressive. And that's good, that that is the righteous thing to do. You should not use coarse language, that is correct. But your flesh now is gonna try to tell you two ugly lies about that good deed. One, it's gonna try to convince you that obedience to the law makes you worth a little something extra. And two, it's gonna try to convince you that those other people that don't obey the law are therefore worth less. Right? Because, I mean, you're obeying the law, so that means that it's possible, and that means that everyone should be doing it. Maybe it's like, I tithe 10%. Why don't you? I volunteer for the needy. Why does not that Christian? I read my Bible every day. Keep up. And it's even worse when we use things that aren't even required by the law to judge each other. Right? Like, uh, I mean, this one, you know, hits home. Like, I homeschool my kids. You know? What's the matter with you? Why don't you? I go on overseas mission trips, you know, where are you at? Taking vacations. I'm always at church on time, you know, get it together. And like, listen, all of these things that I listed are good things to do, right? Being generous is a command. Caring for the needy is a command. Coming to church on time is not a command, but like it's a good thing to do. You should come to church on time, fine. But if I, in my heart, denigrate you because I'm following my pet law and you're not, I am devouring you. See, it requires both license and legalism in my heart to make this sickness survive. Because the fact of the matter is, you are more righteous than me about some other thing, but I'm cutting myself slack in that area. I give liberty to my flesh in the places where you are more righteous, and I apply my legalism to you in the areas where I'm more righteous. And that's why Paul's list of works of the flesh counts as equal sorcery and idolatry alongside things that we would think of as petty like jealousy or envy or strife. And that's why Paul talks about unity so much throughout all of his writing. A visitor who walks into foundation is not going to stumble across an orgy. And the thing is they're probably not going to stumble upon like a scene of open dissension either. But are they going to see the teeth marks that we're leaving? I think that Paul's use of bite and devour and consume is intentional too. He's describing mounting damage, right? Like my son Arthur has four teeth and he bites me sometimes. Like it's usually an accident, sometimes it's on purpose, but you know, I just bear with him. I just kinda let it go. And we all nip at each other from time to time. It's just, it's the way it is. I say something that you don't like, you say something that I don't like, maybe it's on purpose, maybe it wasn't. It just, you know, 99% of the time we just bear with one another and we let that go. We need to be gracious. But I, I wouldn't consider it accurate to say that, that Arthur devours me. That says that's intent. That's ripping and tearing. That's trying to hurt me. But be careful, like don't don't say, well, I'm not trying to hurt anyone, so you know, don't like don't give yourself license for the flesh in that way, right? Because what, what it usually means to devour the other is is to slowly become hardened against them, actually it doesn't seem like maybe you're wishing them harm, but your heart starts to say, in, instead of looking at someone and saying, I, I hope that God shows him the error of his ways, after a while, that turns into, I hope he learns his lesson, right? And you know, she would, she would benefit spiritually if she improved in this area, turns into, how can someone be a Christian and not do this? And so we see how Paul says we bite and devour one another as well. This spirit of division is is not only contagious, but it's also self-harming. When you harden your heart against someone like that, whether or not they see it, you're hurting them and you're absolutely hurting yourself too. And those teeth marks start to mount and those little little bite marks, those little nips start to turn into chunks. When we withhold charity from each other, we make it doubly hard for charity to be extended to us. And so trust declines and suspicion mounts. And ultimately, we're all consumed. Consumed, you know, in the context of biting and devouring, certainly implies that we're destroyed, you know, eaten. But consumed also means just used up. You know, we become wearied. We just, we're out of gas. We don't have it in us anymore. Because no one is charitable. And so we all know that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, which is why Paul so strongly urges us to use our freedom to serve and love one another and not to bite and devour one another. Let me reference James again. And for the record, a lot of people say that like James and Galatians contrast with one another. You can pick out verses here and there that seem like they're saying the opposite thing. If you read the whole book and then the whole book, there's nothing going on. It's fine. I promise. <laughs> Listen. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love the neighbor as yourself you are doing well but if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but you do murder you have become a transgressor of the law so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy mercy triumphs Overjudgment. So when James says show partiality, it certainly applies to judging others on outward appearance, but it also applies to judging others legalistically like we've been talking about. It's a sin. Because by holding someone else sharply to the law in one point, you are holding yourself sharply to the law in every point. By demanding the best from one another, you are also demanding it of yourself. And so instead, knowing that we are not under the law, but we are under mercy be merciful knowing that we are not saved by our good works but by grace be gracious mercy has triumphed over judgment in your salvation you ought to be judged sinful and condemned and yet you've received mercy and so then likewise how dare we accept and abuse God's mercy while grinding our brother down with judgment so the application of this point could be extensive it's certainly deep within your heart I can't point out your secret legalism against someone else unless you speak it, and likewise you to me. So most of this is gonna happen between you and God. But confess your sins. Confess where you're loose with your own sins and where you're legalistic with others. And you may even need to confess to someone else if you've harmed them or if you need the accountability. But confessing your sins puts you in the correct frame of mind. The frame of mind that if I were held to the law it would nail me to the cross. And so how dare I nail anyone else with my pet laws? If we know one another's sins and shortcomings, how can we fail to be charitable with one another? It's really difficult to be judgmental who knows, to be judgmental with someone who knows about all of your problems too. James says to confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. And in Ephesians, Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Also release your brothers and sisters from your narrow outlook. <clears throat> this is actually an opportunity for us to broaden the scope of what we're considering and appreciate the diversity of God's church. Different people and cultures have different gifts, so let's embrace them. Some are hands, some are eyes. You do not expect more of a hand than it ought to be able to do be gracious within foundation, but also without. Other churches and other traditions have their strengths. We think we're right, they think they're right. (laughs) Other people that you see online, they're doing things that you don't know about. So let's just take the greatest care to not become known as that church that's too good for anyone, all the while nursing our precious little sins. Jesus has a lot to say about such people. So let me summarize, finally, what we've heard altogether from God's word today. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So first and foremost, let us always remember that the most potent antidote to all of these dangers is constant reminder of the gospel. Never forget that you needed someone else's righteousness to save you. Not the law, not your own righteousness, nothing you could earn, nothing you could store up for yourself. It is God-given only. Next, remember to take heed of the dangers of counting yourself as free from the law without defining what you are free to do. Do not idolize freedom for its own sake and be wary of those things that you are withholding for yourself under the disguise of your rights. When you find yourself selfishly keeping things back, ask God to meet those needs instead and free you to generously love and serve others with them. Next, recall again that the law has no power to save you. There is no list or goal that you can complete that will be sufficient. To love your neighbor means to completely be righteous. Following Jesus' example, which means that you cannot save yourself and you cannot do this on your own and you must cry out to Jesus to save you and to sanctify you, to make you able to be righteous. It also means that you must guard your hearts against that type of legalism where you try to put boundaries on what you must do instead of fully committing to righteousness. Finally, keep watch for the tendency to give grace to yourself to sin too freely while holding others to legalistic standards. Attack this sin from both directions. Apply the true gospel to yourself, recognizing that you have been made free to live righteously, not to sin more. And likewise, apply the true gospel to the other, reminding yourself that they are saved by grace, just like you, and they are not saved because they do or do not obey your pet laws. Enjoy the great diversity of the body in culture and temperament and gifting, recognizing that God has made his church this way as an opportunity for us to serve and love one another freely, not because it is the law, but as an outpouring of his righteousness in us given to others. It is a picture of God's love for us and a picture of what we have to look forward to in heaven in glory. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us the law, although it cannot save us. Thank you for giving us the law to point us towards your righteousness and to help us understand how far away we are from it. God, thank you for giving Jesus then, who is the fulfillment of the law and who is righteousness. He is the only way that we could have ever been saved. Lord, because we know that, we recognize that we are not free to sin, but we are free to be righteous. So let us cast aside the legalistic excuses we make for ourselves and the legalistic demands that we put on others. Let us cast aside the looseness with which we treat our own sin and let us always return to the gospel. We are reliant on you and Jesus and Jesus' work and on nothing else. Let that engender in us a spirit of grace and of mercy and of charity and of unity with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at FXBG.